Our scripture reading is Isaiah chapter 46. We will read together the entire chapter, Isaiah 46. Bel boweth down, Nebo stoopeth. Their idols were upon the beasts and upon the cattle. Your carriages were heavy loaden. They are a burden to the weary beast. They stoop, they bow down together. They could not deliver the burden, but themselves are gone into captivity. Hearken unto me, O house of Jacob, and all the remnant of the house of Israel, which are born by me from the belly, which are carried from the womb. And even to your old age, I am he. And even to whore hairs will I carry you. I have made, and I will bear. Even I will carry and will deliver you. To whom will ye liken me, and make me equal, and compare me, that we may be like? They lavish gold out of the bag, and weigh silver in the balance, and hire a goldsmith, and he maketh it a god. They fall down, yea, they worship. They bear him upon the shoulder, they carry him, and set him in his place, and he standeth. For his place shall he not remove, yea, one shall cry unto him, yet can he not answer, nor save him out of his trouble. Remember this, and show yourselves men, bring it again to mind, O ye transgressors. Remember the former things of old, for I am God, and there is none else. I am God, and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning. And from ancient times the things that are not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will do all my pleasure. Calling a ravenous bird from the east, the man that executeth my counsel from a far country, yea, I have spoken it, I will also bring it to pass. I have purposed it, I will also do it. Hearken unto me, ye stout-hearted, that are far from righteousness. I bring near my righteousness. It shall not be far off, and my salvation shall not tarry. And I will place salvation in Zion, for Israel my glory. The basis of this chapter and the entire word of God, we consider now... Lord's Day 49 of the Heidelberg Catechism. Question 124 asks, what or which is the third petition? Thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. That is, grant that we and all men may renounce our own will, and without murmuring obey thy will, which is only good, that so everyone may attend to and perform the duties of his station and calling as willingly and faithfully as the angels do in heaven. As our Lord 
guides us through the first three petitions of his model prayer. Jesus is weaving together one thought. We see that, do we not, how the first three petitions are intimately connected to each other. First, Jesus sets before us the end, the end of all things, that is the purpose of all things, the hallowing of God's name, the glorification of the name of God. That is the end of all things, and therefore it must be first and before all things in our hearts and in our lives. And flowing from that is the second petition, thy kingdom come for the glorification of God's name is accomplished through the coming of of his kingdom. And we who desire that his name be hallowed also desire that his kingdom come, first of all, in our own hearts. With the coming of the kingdom, we pray, Thy will be done. The kingdom, remember, is first of all the gracious rule of Jesus Christ in the heart of his elect people and over their lives. If Christ is our king, we, his friend servants, must desire that his kingly will be done. If his scepter holds sway over our lives, that means this, that the will which we must do is not our own, but the will of our king. It is the meat of the citizen of the kingdom, to do the will of our Redeemer King. And that too is the outstanding mark of the child of God, as Jesus himself says in Mark 3 verse 35, that whosoever doeth the will of God, that person, Jesus says, is my brother, my sister. Are we willing? That's the question the third petition sets before us. What is the direction of our wills? Is it such that we can sincerely from the heart pray, Thy will be done? Or is there a desire that supersedes that, namely, my will be done? Is there something we want more? Let us see that if and when we say, my will be done, we are rebelling against our king and resisting his kingdom as it comes in our hearts and in our lives. These two petitions are very closely connected. And so in the same breath as we pray, thy kingdom come, let us also learn to pray, thy will be done. And just as we saw, we must pray for grace Grace to desire God's kingdom and to live as a citizen of the kingdom. So too the third petition is a petition for grace because of ourselves we are willful creatures who will our own wills rather than our God's will. We need grace to sincerely pray thy will be done. And to take that petition and stamp our entire life with it. So that our life is life of doing the will of our Father. Let's look this morning at the third petition then, under the theme, Thy will be done. We'll first look at the will, what it is. 
Secondly, thy will, God's will. And thirdly, the implications of the third petition for our will. God is a willing God. That is, he is a God who wills, who desires, who purposes, who plans, and acts accordingly. And God, in his good pleasure, has created man, a creature who reflects him in this sense, as well as others, that God has made you and me to have a will. We are willing creatures. What is this will? The will is simply the power of the human soul to choose, to desire, to plan, and to purpose, and to act upon those plans, desires, decisions, choices. The will, alongside the intellect, are the two unique powers of the human soul that distinguish us from the brute creation and from all other creatures, with the exception of angels, who also share with us the designation moral, rational creatures. You've probably heard that phrase. It's a good phrase to describe the human nature. God has made us moral, rational creatures. That is, we have the capacity to reason. We are rational to think. We are self-conscious creatures who think and deliberate. And alongside that intellect that God has given us, we have also been created with a will, the power to make choices and to plan on the basis of our reasoning and our thinking. We are moral, rational creatures. That's how God has made us. And part of that is then also this, that we have a moral consciousness. We are able to distinguish right from wrong. And we are also responsible to our creator to do what is right and to shun what is wrong. And that too makes us different from the brute creation. The wind, when it blows, does not sin when it blows or do a good work when it blows. It's not a moral, rational creature. But man, in all of his thinking, willing, desiring, all of his moral, rational activity is accountable to the God who made him. That's the human nature. We have a moral, rational nature. God made us that way. And that's clear from the opening passage of Scripture, Genesis 1 and 2. Though you don't find it written explicitly, God made man with a will, you see this reality, for example, in God's giving of the commandment of life in Genesis 2, 16 and 17, where we read, The Lord God commanded the man, And then gave him this warning. Thou shalt not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For in the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. Did God give that command to the other creatures that he made on the sixth day? Did he go to the beasts of the field and the creeping things and say, Thou shalt not? Of course not. They're not moral, rational creatures. But God created man to have a will. And God then commands man to exercise that will in harmony with God's own divine will. That is the sum of human righteousness. What does it mean for a human being to be righteous? It means this, at base, to be in harmony with the will of God. That was man's calling in the beginning. And by that command that God gave to Adam and Eve, he taught them that God himself 
is the supreme good and the overflowing fountain of all good. And that in his favor there is life, but apart from him in his favor there is death and misery. And that the way of life and flourishing is harmony with the divine will. As our Belgic Confession, Article 14, summarizes it beautifully, God made man capable in all things to will agreeably to the will of God. But the fall changed everything. We notice that too in regard to the second petition, how the kingdom building impulse that is latent in the human nature became misdirected and corrupted by the fall. Well, the same thing is true of the human will. The will, as we've described it, is not what we experience now. Adam and Eve, before the fall, their wills were upright. They willed and desired and thought and planned and chose in full harmony with God's own will, but not anymore. The fall corrupted man's will. So that now, instead of being a willing creature that willingly submits to God's will, man has become a willful creature. A willful creature who now asserts his own will over and against the divine will. The fall really had its birth in human willfulness. The same article of the Belgic Confession, Article 14, says this of the fall of Adam and Eve, that man willfully subjected himself to sin. For the commandment of life which he had received, he transgressed, and by sin separated himself from God who was his true life. Satan appealed to the will. He told our first mother, you shall not die. Look. Disobey God, and ye shall be as God, determining for yourself good and evil. He tempted her to willfulness, and our first parents sinned when they asserted their own will against the will of Almighty God, their Creator. Now the fall did not destroy This capacity of the human soul. The fall did not erase the human will. It did not reduce us to the level of animals. Fallen man, the reprobate wicked, who are slaves to sin, they still have a will. They're still moral, rational creatures. As Canons 3.4, Article 16 states, By the fall, man did not cease to be a creature endowed with will and understanding but brought upon him depravity and spiritual death. This is the effect of the fall upon the human will. Bondage. The fall brought about the total corruption of the human nature. That's total depravity. So that natural man, and that term natural man, which we use in theology, simply means man as born in this fallen world, man apart from the regenerating grace of God, Natural man is born totally depraved. His entire nature, thoroughly corrupted, twisted in on itself and bent away from God. So that his intellect, though it may be brilliant, and there are many brilliant unbelievers in this world whose intellects are vast, but their intellect is darkened. 
spiritually darkened and turned away from God so that all of their intellectual powers are devoted to self and devoted to rebelling against the will of God. And in the same way, natural man's will, the power of planning and choosing and then acting upon those choices is bent and twisted away from God so that man is now a rebel against God and his will in bondage. That's the bondage of the will. Natural man, fallen man, apart from grace, cannot desire the good, cannot choose the good, will not choose the good. His entire nature is now oriented towards sin. He's a slave to sin. That's why Arminianism is so wrong. Arminianism ignores this reality and says, man is saved by first making a choice, by first exercising his will, reaching out to God because he desires the good and he seeks salvation. And once man reaches out to God, then God will reach out to him. That's impossible. It's based on a completely wrong view of human nature. This is man before God sovereignly saves him by his grace. He's a slave to sin. And the only way a man can exercise his will aright is if God first reaches into him by his grace and bends his will back to him. This is also the reason, not the reason, but a reason why every human movement and every human endeavor to build a kingdom of men, to build a utopia here on this earth is doomed to failure. Because it's built on a foundation of sand. It's built on the false notion that man at heart is good and that man's will at heart desires the good. And if we just give man the right environment, we give man the proper education, then man will desire the good. Every movement of man to build a kingdom of man or a utopia here on this earth is defeated by man's own enemy within. He's a slave to sin. That's the dreadful condition of the human will. And nothing but grace. Sovereign, almighty grace of God and Jesus Christ can save us from self and from sin slavery and from the willfulness into which we have plunged ourselves as a race. And a wonderful part of salvation is this, that the grace of God breaks that chain upon our will. And God breaks that chain at regeneration when His Spirit enters into us and gives us the life of Jesus Christ. And the Spirit of Christ liberates us from sin slavery, from that bondage, so that now we are truly able, as regenerated children of God, we are truly able To will and to choose the good. Not of ourselves, as if we now have some power in ourselves by which we do this. But by the power of grace within us. And by the power of the Spirit dwelling in us. Salvation frees us from bondage. We belong to Jesus Christ. And that includes body and soul. And that includes the faculties of the soul. Our intellect and our will is now Christ's possession, and the grace of God bends our wills back to Him. That doesn't mean we don't sin. That doesn't mean we don't desire to sin. We have that old man. There is much willfulness yet in us. But this is a reality. 
as regenerated children of God, liberated by grace, by the power of that grace, we can again desire the good. Creedal proof for that. Canons 3.4, Article 16, says this of regenerating grace and its operation upon the will of the elect believer. It says of this grace that it spiritually quickens, heals, corrects, and at the same time sweetly and powerfully bends it. And the it there is our will. And the effect of this powerful and sweet bending of our will is this, that where carnal rebellion and resistance formerly prevailed, a ready and sincere spiritual obedience begins to reign in which the true and spiritual restoration and freedom of our will consists. And that's why we now have that struggle, that experience which Paul puts into words better than we can in Romans 7 verse 19 where he says, the good that I would, I do not, but the evil which I would not, that I do. That's our struggle. Our will is again bent back towards God. We have a desire for the good. And yet we have our sinful flesh, that old man who wants to constantly reassert control over our wills and bend our wills and our desires, our thoughts, our plans, our choices back towards self and back towards sin. And there's that tension, that fight. The fight over our will is part of the fight of faith, part of the Christian's Warfare. The flesh says, my will be done. The new principle of the life of Christ in us, the new man says, thy will be done. And these are intention, fighting within us. Thus our need, thus our need to have our master teacher and our savior teach us to pray, thy will be done. Our need for grace. Grace and constant supply to put off the old man and his willfulness and to put on the new man and his willingness toward God. Thy will be done. Thy will. That's what we turn to now. We've looked at the history of the human will and seen how it has come into opposition and conflict with the divine will. But now as God's redeemed people, who by the Spirit have had our wills bent back towards God, and who have this battle within us now against the will of the flesh, the will of the new man in Christ, we look to God's will. Thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. That is what we are taught to pray, to desire, to seek. God has given us a will But there is one will that is supreme, and that is God's will. And it is only good when our will is in conformity with His will. God's will is the standard for every other will that He has made. Thy will be done. What does that mean then? When we pray, Thy will be done be done. God's will is one, 
God is a willing God who wills and desires and seeks all of the thoughts and the plans of his eternal counsel. His will is one. But to aid our creaturely understanding, we can consider that one will of God from two points of view. Look at it from two angles. And here we come to that classic theological distinction between the will of God's decree and the will of God's command. And this isn't a dry, scholastic, hair-splitting distinction. It's one that's important for us to understand so that we can perceive the will of God and understand what the Scriptures speak about the will of God. The will of God is a, a grand subject that covers much ground. And this is a distinction that helps us understand the Bible's teaching about the will of God. So let's look at those two aspects of the one will of God. Because when we are taught to pray, thy will be done, that prayer touches upon both of these. In the first place, there is God's will of decree. God's will of decree is simply his eternal ordination of all things that come to pass in time and history. To put it another way, God's will of decree is his eternal plan and purpose, which he sovereignly unfolds by his providence in a most excellent and just manner. Isaiah 46 verse 10 says that God's counsel shall stand. And that biblical word counsel refers to God's will of decree. Another example would be Ephesians 1 verse 11 which says that God fulfills the counsel of his own will. Sometimes we refer to God's counsel as his decree or his decrees. All of those words are referring to the same thing. God's eternal plan, which he realizes in time and history by his providence and in a most excellent and just manner. The Bible tells us much about this will of God's decree, his eternal counsel, the plan that has eternally been in the infinite mind of God. The Bible tells us that this counsel, this will of God's decree is eternal and unchanging. And that's important to see. God's eternal will is not his reaction to what takes place in time. It's not that God sees something that happens and then he makes a plan in response. It's not even that God looks down the corridors of time and reacts to what he foresees will come to pass. That can't be because God is eternal. Time is not a limitation upon him. He is outside of time. Time is his creature. God's own will gave time its birth. And thus God's purpose, his plans, are are not confined by time. They are eternal. God's counsel is eternal. And Isaiah 46 verse 10 brings that out. God declares the end from the beginning. And the idea is not that he just knows what's going to happen. 
God's word is a creative word, is it not? What happens when God declares? Go back to Genesis 1. God declared, let there be light, and there was light. The declaration of God is creative. The declaration of God causes. When God declares the end from the beginning, the eternal plan of God causes time and history. The eternal plan of God causes time and history, and all that happens within them. This will of God's decree is all-encompassing and all-determining. It's as wide as existence, and of course it is, because God is the creator. He made all things. That's explicit in Ephesians 1 verse 11, which speaks of God this way, Him who worketh all things after the counsel of his own will. Everything. Everything that happens is according to God's will, his eternal plan. From the movements, the little subatomic particles in your cells, to the movements of the largest and vastest bodies in outer space, all according to the counsel of his will. Yes, That includes even the actions of moral, rational creatures such as you and me. And yes, that includes even the evil actions of fallen moral, rational creatures such as Satan and his devils, such as sinners and fallen man. God's sovereignty extends even over sin. Nothing is outside God's eternal plan. We see that in Isaiah 46, verse 11. God is speaking after he says, My counsel shall stand and I will do all my pleasure. Verse 11 specifies part of God's counsel, part of his plan. Calling a ravenous bird from the east, the man that executeth my counsel from a far country. Yea, I have spoken it. I will also bring it to pass. I have purposed it. I will also do it. The question then is, who is this ravenous bird? Well, if we flip over to Isaiah 45 verse 1, we find God naming him. Through the prophet Isaiah, long before he was even born. Isaiah 46, verse 11, is speaking about King Cyrus, the first great king of the Persians that we know about. Thus saith the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have holden, to subdue nations before him. And I will loose the loins of kings to open before him the two-leaved gates. And the gates shall not be shut. Here in Isaiah 46, God is speaking about his eternal plan to deliver his chosen people who are not, who will be in exile in Babylon, to deliver them by means of this man Cyrus, who will come from the east as a ravening bird, devouring nations before him. He will conquer the mighty empire of Babylon. He will plunder. He will kill. He will destroy. And on The basis of that carnage of war, he will build a new world empire. Now, 
The conquests of Cyrus and the atrocities of his armies, the violence, the bloodshed, is that not evil? Yes, it is. And yet, the text shows us that God was in control of that. It was in accord with his eternal plan and that God used it for the deliverance of his people from captivity. For it would be Cyrus who would issue that edict allowing the Jews to return home and to build the temple. God is sovereign over evil. But he is not guilty of that evil. As our Belgic confession says, he exercises his sovereignty over the evil of men in a most excellent and just manner, such that he is not guilty. He does not condone the evil. God hates all evil with the fullness of his holy being, and yet he is the God who is in full control of it, has even appointed it for his own purposes. Who is man to reply against God? Man wants to reply against God at this point moment and murmur, how can this be? Well, there are some things our creaturely minds cannot fully wrap themselves around, and wisdom accepts that. God is infinite. God is holy. God is God. Who can we liken God unto? None. Who can we compare with God? None. Therefore, let man and all the earth be silent before the sovereign one who worketh all things after the counsel. His own will. That's the will of God's decree. Will of God's decree, again, is His eternal plan that is eternal and unchanging, that is all comprehensive, so that all things happen in time and history according to His purpose. But now there's also the will of God's command. When we speak about God's will, this is often what we are talking about. God's will of his command is his ethical will. His will for how we are to live. The sort of conduct and conversation that is pleasing to him. It's his will for how we live so that our life is in harmony and in conformity with his own being. The will of God's command is sometimes called his revealed will. Because it is revealed in the scriptures. It is summarized in the Ten Commandments. and the summary of the law which we read this morning. God's eternal counsel. The will of his decree is hidden from us. We cannot plumb the depths of the divine mind. And search out all of the parts of his eternal counsel. Really there aren't parts. His counsel is one. We learn something of his counsel as it unfolds in time and history. And he does choose to reveal certain aspects of it. But God's will of his command is entirely revealed to us. All that we need to know to live in obedience to him. And to please him as our father is revealed in the scriptures. And in God's law. That's the will of God's command. For example in 1 Thessalonians 4 verse 3. We see. The term will being used this way. 1 Thessalonians 4 verse 3. For this is the will of God. Even your sanctification. This is what God is pleased with. That you grow in holiness. This is his command to you. That you seek holiness. That you obey his law. Will of command. 
The Bible tells us much about this aspect of God's will too. Unlike God's will of decree, this will is fully revealed to us. We know it in his word. God's will of command is perfectly holy. It reflects his own divine being. So that every precept of his law and word is only righteous. And God's will of command then is the standard for our life. It is the standard for our discerning right from wrong. God's revealed law is the measuring stick by which we determine how we are to live, what is righteous, and what is sin. God's will defines for us what the good life is. As Psalm 19 verses 7 and 8 say, the law of the Lord is perfect, and the law is the revelation of his will of command. The statutes of the Lord are right. The commandment of the Lord is pure. And so in God's law, which expresses his will of command, God addresses us as his people, as moral, rational creatures, and he says, this is what you must do. This is how you must live. This is what pleases me. Now, to wrap up the second point, let's see that when Jesus teaches us to pray, thy will be done, we are talking about the one will of God. That prayer touches upon both of its aspects. God's will of decree and God's will of command. Thy will be done means thy will of decree be done. It is a prayer in which we say to God, execute thy counsel, accomplish thy purposes. Unfold thy plan in time and history. Perhaps that's surprising. After all, God's going to realize his plan no matter what. He says so in Isaiah 46. My counsel shall stand. And there is such definitiveness to those words. All of the force of God's almighty power stands behind them. My plan will stand. I shall do my pleasure. Nothing can topple that. Nothing can make God's counsel fall over or make it fail to stand. And yet, God still desires that his people pray, Father, execute thy counsel. For the same reason, as we noted in connection with the first petition, God is going to hallow his name. As God unfolds his counsel, he does so for his own glory. And yet, God wants us his redeemed children, to consciously adore his name, to consciously desire the hallowing of his name, and thereby devote our whole being to the glorification of his name. And so in the first petition we pray, grant me the grace to desire the glory of thy name and to hallow it with my words and with my life. The same principle is here in the third petition. God will execute his counsel. But Jesus teaches us to pray that God would conform us to his will so that we may consciously desire the execution of God's counsel and pray for the grace to desire it 
and to submit to it as God unfolds his plan. Third petition is a petition for grace. We need that grace to pray, Thy will be done. Because we don't pray this petition abstractly, Thy will be done out there. Thy will be done with those people. Thy will be done here. Thy will be done in and through me and my life. And that's where this petition gets tough on us. When we pray it personally and understand all that it means. Thy will of decree, Father, let it be realized in my life. Do you understand what that means? That means, Father, thy counsel stand in me and in my life. Do thy pleasure with me and my life. Not my counsel shall stand. We often want to do that with Isaiah 46, verse 10. Flip it on its head. My counsel shall stand. I shall do my pleasure. But praying the third petition means no. Thy counsel. Thy pleasure. Thy plan. Your life has a plan. A perfect plan. But when that is said, we don't mean what the world often means by it. Or what sadly is often meant by it in the Christian community. God has this wonderful plan and surprise, surprise, it's going to turn out to be exactly what you want. Oh no. God has a plan. His eternal counsel. It's a perfect plan. But it is not necessarily the plan that comes to your mind. It is not necessarily the plan that you have or what you envision will be good for you and for your life. It's not necessarily. Indeed, it often is not what we feel is best for us right now. God's ways are higher. His thoughts are higher. The thoughts, the plans, the purposes of his infinite mind. So far beyond us. And when we pray, thy will be done. We are saying, thy perfect plan, Father. Let it be done. Not mine. Thine. It's a petition of faith. Petition you can only pray by grace and in faith. Say confidently as we sang. My life in all its perfect plan was ordered ere my days began. Let that plan be done. And so the third petition comes to us. And as our Lord teaches us to pray it. He would have us face the question. Whose will is in the driver's seat of your life right now? Whose counsel do you want to stand? Whose pleasure do you want to see done? Whose will reigns? God grant us the grace to say, Thy will be done.
We pray that with regard to God's will of decree, but we also pray it with regard to God's will of command. The third petition is a prayer for God to graciously give us the gift of obedience to his law. Notice that that is implied in the third petition. The third petition acknowledges that obedience to God is not something man produces of his own strength, of his own resources. Thy will be done. Thy law be obeyed. And we're praying for that. Which means we ask God for the gift of obedience. Implicit here is a confession of sin and a humble acknowledgement that I cannot obey thy will of myself. I need thee and thy grace. Obedience is a gift of grace. It's a fruit of the operation of the Spirit. God must work in us both to will and to do of his good pleasure. And that's what we ask for in the third petition. Faith cries out for that grace because faith knows God and trusts God. And faith from which true love springs, that faith wants to obey God. But that faith acknowledges, I don't have the resources of myself to do it. Work in me by thy grace. Work in me obedience to thy commands. We must humbly acknowledge our own insufficiency. When we pray this third petition, recognize, I need grace to obey. Grant it, Father. Grant it. Now, we understand that that doesn't mean That obedience springs out of us unconsciously the way fire generates smoke. Of course not. God made us moral, rational creatures. And salvation does not destroy our moral, rational nature. It doesn't override that nature. But God is pleased to work in such a way that is in harmony with the moral, rational nature of man. And so God works in us both the will to obey and the doing of that obedience. And out of that work in us, we obey. Canons 3.4, Article 12, lays out the decisive Reformed perspective on this. Canons 3.4, Article 12. Whereupon the will thus renewed is not only actuated and influenced by God, but in consequence of this influence becomes itself active. Wherefore also man is himself rightly said to believe and repent by virtue of that grace received. Obedience is a gift of grace. It's all of God. It comes from God and is unto God. But God works in such a way that he makes us active. And that is for his glory. That's the way he wants to do it. We are the workmanship of his grace. And God is glorified when we will and we do his good pleasure. And so in the third petition, we are asking for that grace. Grant me the grace to obey thee, to bend my will back towards thee, to harmonize my will with thine, to live according to all of thy good commandments. Is that what we want? 
Let it be what we want. Let us have such an esteem for the will of God expressed in His law that we cry out, Give me a heart that loves Thy will. And give me hands and feet that do Thy will. And so at last we come to our will. Praying Thy will be done means we pray something about our will too. And as the catechism specifies, at heart that means this. Grant that we renounce our will. When we say, thy will be done, that doesn't mean we abolish our will and become unwilling creatures. But it means we put away willfulness and seek to have our wills conformed to God's will. This means putting my will underneath God's will. Making my will the servant of God's will. It means where my will contradicts his, I renounce it. I disown it. I put it away. I will suffer no contradiction of my will and his. And it means that when my will turns out to be out of harmony with his, that I will conform my will to his. My will is to serve my king. Three things briefly. Submission in the first place. When we pray, thy will be done, this means I submit my will to God's will as he providentially unfolds it in my life. All that he brings to pass, I see his hand in it. So I don't murmur, I don't complain, I don't rebel. Even when he overturns my plans, even when he puts a twist and a turn in my life's pathway, I don't murmur. Even when his way doesn't make sense, doesn't seem right, even when I can muster all sorts of reasons why my will would be better, by grace I put down that willfulness. Resist the temptation to assert my will over God's and submit to his will, which as the catechism says, is only good, which the psalm said, is best. And I say, thy counsel shall stand. Thou shalt do all thy pleasure. Submission. Secondly, complete renunciation. Of anything that is out of harmony with God's will of command. Denying self. Denying one's sinful desires. God's law says no, I will say no. What God says yes to, I will say yes. Grant me the grace, Father, to submit my will such to thee that I renounce all contrary to thy commandments. And that I yield myself then in all my decisions and choices to thy will, thy will shall be the decisive factor in my life. Not my feelings, not my reasoning, but thy will. Thy will be done. And thirdly, yielding in our station and calling to God's will. Our station and calling, as the Catechism describes it, is the place God has set us, our post. We're like soldiers in the army of Christ, and we're given a post. And that's where we are now. 
That's our current life situation, whether we're married or whether we're single, whether we're parents, whether we're not. Whatever our position may be in this life, that's our post. And we're called to be good, loyal soldiers of Christ. Not murmuring, not doing our own thing, but with single-minded devotion, serving Him. Doing the will of our King and the captain of our salvation. Desiring to do so with the same fervency and faithfulness as the angels do in heaven. Thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. My will beneath thy will. Well, as our Lord teaches us to pray this petition, we're touched with the feeling of our infirmities, aren't we? Indeed, we are. Because the word of God uncovers how much willfulness still remains against our will in us. How far short we fall. Isaiah 46 verse 12 describes us just as it described Judah. Hearken unto me ye stout hearted. And that means hard hearted. That are far from righteousness. That's who we are. We are still stout hearted. Hard hearted in our willfulness. So often we say my will not thy will. We are far from righteousness. We murmur against God's providence. We refuse to accept and submit to his will. We find foolish ways to assert our will over God's and justify it to those around us and in our own consciences. The comfort is. Comfort. God says in verse 10, My counsel shall stand And I shall do my pleasure. And at the center of that counsel is Jesus Christ. Who came to do the will of God. And who fulfilled the will of God's command perfectly. That life of perfect obedience which he rendered to God in your place. As your representative. Jesus who perfectly submitted to God's will of decree. The decree. Of the cross. The decree. The weight of which pressed out of him the bloody sweat in the garden. Where he prayed, oh my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as thou wilt. And our perfect savior went to that cross and he drank that cup. So that he could perform the great exchange. Your rags for the robes of his righteousness. And that he might pour upon you his life-giving spirit. Who more and more sweetly bends your will to his. Jesus Christ is why there's Isaiah 46 verse 13. Where God says, I bring near my righteousness. It shall not be far off. We are far from righteousness of a... Of ourselves, but God brings His righteousness near in Jesus Christ, and it shall not be far off, and my salvation shall not tarry, and I will place salvation in Zion. For Israel, my glory. That's what God's plan has accomplished. He's taken us willful creatures and turned us into Israel, His glory. So that we, the workmanship of His grace, magnify His glory. Magnify the power of God. Our comfort is in Christ. 
through Christ, God's will for our salvation has been done. And thus the mighty struggle we experience now is already won. We fight in victory. And the day is swiftly coming when we shall be like the angels. When God's will shall be done in earth as it is in heaven. In the new creation. Where we'll be liberated from the last vestiges of sin. And the last vestiges of willfulness. And know again the blessed liberty and peace. Of being fully in harmony with the will of our God. And that gospel comfort. Gives us the peace. To pray sincerely. From the heart. Thy will be done. Amen. Faithful God and Heavenly Father, grant us the grace to seek and to do Thy will and to submit to Thy unfolding plan for us, which is only good. Teach us to pray this petition and to live this petition and to rest in the accomplished will for our salvation in Jesus Christ. Bless this word to our hearts that it may fruitfully bring forth submission to Thee and glad obedience to Thy word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.